You are listening to the Baseball in the Burrows podcast, where myself, Tyler Smith, and Noah Broderick talk about baseball with a pretty bad microphone. Time to listen to a 20-second GarageBand clip to make the transition into the episode a little less awkward. Welcome back, everybody, to the Baseball in the Burrows podcast. This is episode 13 from the bitter temperatures of State College. Noah is in Morristown right now. I'm sure it's also pretty cold there. Noah, how you doing? Doing well, man. Uh, obviously missed last week's episode. I had some things going on. Uh, but back this week, pretty low-key. And um, despite you know the recent Yankees news coming down that reminisces of 2019, uh, really excited for spring training. First game tomorrow. Are you going to be watching any baseball tomorrow? I will be watching baseball tomorrow. I actually was under the impression that the Mets' first spring training game was today. Fortunately, it wasn't because I wasn't able to watch the typical 110 slot. I had class. So Mets play tomorrow at 110. I believe Rick Porcello is on the mound. I'm excited for that. You know, like the first four or five innings are always fun. And then they're playing guys from single A, double A, and it kind of gets whatever. But just seeing baseball again and seeing the SNY intro is something I'm really looking forward to. I, I assume the Yankees play tomorrow also. Yeah, Jay Happ's on the mound. It's kind of funny how these teams always put their worst starter. Like the guy that had like a 5 ERA the year before on that first game. Yeah. Like, like Porcello's for you guys. We got Jay Happ. I feel like I saw somewhere that yeah, Adam Wainwright was throwing for the Cardinals. It's just somebody like that that always seems to start this first game. But last year, uh, Gleyber Torres hit the first home run Yankee spring training. The year before that, I believe it was Andujar. And the year before that, it was Judge. Those guys all had big years after that. So maybe there's something to watch there. First spring training home run means you're going to have a big year. So what I want to watch out of spring training for the Mets is the situation with Jed Lowry. And I bring that up because who was that? Uh, I, he's this guy. He actually signed up for the Mets last year. He didn't play a single game. But here's a tweet from a year ago today from Steve Gelbs, who is a he's a very good reporter. He does like the silent report for the Mets. He's a writer. It's going to be like uh, nothing serious, right? <laughs> After getting tests done today, Jed Lowry's injury does not appear serious. The hashtag Mets will take it slow with him until he's 100%. That was a year ago from today, February 21st, 2019. Over a month still to go until the season started. So everyone thought that Jed Lowry was going to be okay. And the first reply to that tweet is, so you're saying he's out until July, which is funny because Jed Lowry didn't end up coming back till September. When Jed Lowry did come back, played in nine games. He didn't really play in nine games. He appeared in nine games. He had seven at-bats. He had zero hits. And now he's wearing – it looks like a bionic knee brace he's wearing. I have no idea what happened. Like – do you think it was like a torn ACL or is something amput- like that? Is amputation coming? It might be, honestly, because I have no idea. What, he, he looks like he's moving around okay, but I don't know if you saw that video of him wearing that knee brace. That thing was massive. I saw. I, saw, I, saw, I didn't see the video. I saw a picture. Um, I think I saw Meek Phil uh, retweeted or quote tweeted or something. So um, that's that's tough. You know, I, I said back at the time, which is probably the worst opinion I've ever had, and I have a lot of opinions, and you know, a good amount of them uh, will be okay. This one was so bad. I said at the time, Jed Lowry signs for two years, $20 million with the Mets, and we signed LeMayu to 2-24. and 24. What are the Yankees doing? Lowry's just as good, and we paid LeMayu more money. <laughs> and like, oh, my God. Can you imagine if LeMayu was on the Mets and Lowry's on the Yankees? I mean, that would be yeah, – we wouldn't have been anywhere last year, really. And then similarly, obviously, like the Mets obviously would have been so much better. But if you look at their careers before that, I mean – DJ LeMahieu, I believe, was a batting champ in Colorado in like 2016 or something like that. He always played good defense, but Jed Lowry was always consistent. I mean, 
2017. I mean, they were comparable. They were comparable. Yeah, 2017, 2018, Lowry played 153 games, 157 games. He hit 277, 267. He always put a couple balls over the fence, nothing too good. But he was always just a versatile player. And I honestly thought it was a good move from Brody, especially getting him on two years, $20 million. And it obviously hasn't panned out. And I, I don't I don't think he's going to be healthy for spring training. I don't know. I wish the Mets would update us and tell us what happened because he's been injured for over a year. I don't know how he's at camp injured right now if he came into games last year and hit. Does that like, – I don't know how that makes sense. I don't know what happened there. Yeah, I don't know. It has I don't to, know. I mean, I don't know. hey, we're, we're doing the same thing with Severino now. So, I guess it's uh, it's possible. <laughs> yeah, so what happened – I guess I'll let you take this because I don't know too much. It's actually appearing on MLB Network right now. Luis Severino's shut down. He's undergoing tests in New York on Monday. It was tightness and I want to say like his upper forearm or something like that. I know there was yeah, talk of the something in the elbow. Of his forearm. So it's not it's not under which isn't UCL. And his UCL is fine. He had two MRIs. Um, no problems with the UCL, no problems with the shoulder anymore. It's just uh, some tightness and soreness. He described it as soreness when he throws changeups. Um, that's that's what it is with him. So he's going like you said, undergoing tests next week. I don't I'm not a doomsayer, so maybe can get a this, but it's not really a serious thing. Uh, whenever you hear pitchers, you know, pitchers arm and it's in tightness, you know, that always makes you nervous. And the fact that it stayed back, uh, dates back to last year, given how much of a, you know, struggle last year was for him to stay healthy, but it doesn't seem like it's a major thing. Um, you know, we don't really know what he's dealing with. That's what Cashman said. They have to get their arms around it, but um, it's not what you want. <laughs> As the famous words of Joe Girardi used to, you know, used to say, but um you know, Yankee fans should take a deep breath. I mean, until we get some news about it, I've seen so many takes like the Yankee season's over; it's already happening again. Uh, people got to relax a little well, bit. Well, to be fair, you did that last year. You you made your username Yankees in 2020 already, and then they went on to win 100 plus games. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's true. And now I've learned from that, and that's why I'm not freaking out anymore. <laughs> yeah, it's fair. If you look at the Yankees rotation right now with Severino healthy, if Garrett Cole, Masahiro Tanaka, Luis Severino, J. A. Happ, Jordan Montgomery, those are your top five. If you take Severino out of there, you kind of have a little bit of a shaky rotation, if I'm being honest with you. Obviously, Cole's good. Oh, yeah. I mean, well, hey, when you take up Severino and Paxton, or two of the top 15 pitchers in the American League, uh, you're going to, you know, your rotation is not going to look as sexy on paper. But the hope there, and I think you could agree with this, is just to get them healthy for the stretch run. You know, they're going to need them to win the division uh, more so in the second half of the season, and they're going to need them most importantly in October. And if they have that, they'll be fine. Yeah. And like you said before, Really, in the regular season, especially with teams like this, you can kind of get carried by your offense. And yeah, that's what we did last year. That's I mean, what I'm started, saying. I like, mean, Herman came out of nowhere, but every game, I mean, we had we, – there's a point where Paxton was out too and Severino was out, so the rotation was Hap, Tanaka, CeCe, uh, Herman, and Belizeca slash opener. Yeah, that could happen again this year for a little bit, but when you face the Orioles 19 times, the Blue Jays 19 times, and, you know, the – Tigers and the Royals, and you're facing a lot of those teams, you can get away with that as long as your offense is hitting and you have guys producing. Now, last year, we didn't, you know, we had a bunch of hitters go down, and I don't know if the Yankees can overcome that again uh, to the degree that they did last year, but I, I wouldn't be too concerned. I mean, you guys have plenty of depth around the diamond, also. If you just look at any position, any part of the field, you guys have a lot of depth, and you saw that last year in those series where you judge was down. I remember Stanton was obviously down. I mean, all these guys were beat up, and everyone stepped up and played their role well. Like you said, I don't know if that's sustainable again. Like I think that's kind of a thing that just happens, and like guys are just kind of amped up, and like they're finally getting a chance. They're playing well, but like you said before, I don't think you should be too worried about a guy's injured now. Obviously, Paxton's going to miss some time. 
But the bottom line is that Yankee team is built to win regardless of whether they have a couple pitchers missing, especially in the regular season. Obviously, it's more problematic if you get to the postseason and you have guys oh, yeah. like that I mean, that are missing. They're not going to win without those two guys. They ain't practicing separating on the postseason. Yeah, but. and you actually told this to me before we went on air. Um, Mike Clevenger, I believe you said, is injured. The Indians, that's already an Indians team. It's Indians team. I don't know how I just enunciated that. That's an Indians team that's already lost some this offseason. Obviously, Corey Kluber, they lost Trevor Bauer last year. Mike Clevenger is kind of their top guy with Shane Bieber now. And if he's hurt, I don't know what that injury is like. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Because I didn't know about it. Uh, he's got a torn meniscus. Uh, so he's out six to eight weeks. So that means he's going to pretty much have to have spring training once that time period's over. So I don't think you're going to – I think it's going to be similar to Paxton maybe a little bit later. Um, you know, you figure they're not going to rush him. So you figure two months from now. Um, and that takes us to, what, the end of April. And um, then he has to go through a month of throwing which means maybe by, you know, mid to late May, you know, you could expect them back on the big, uh, big league diamond. I mean, they haven't said that directly. I'm just reading in between the lines. I think that's the same thing with Paxton. Uh, they said back in the beginning of February, it'd be three months. Um, he said he hopes to throw a little bit sooner than that. So maybe he starts throwing at the end of April. He's not going to get him back in big league action until mid-May uh, to late May. So I think that those two guys will be on similar timelines. But um, the Indians, I think, need Clevenger a little bit more than the Yankees need Paxton in the first two months because the Indians' offense isn't built to win every single game. You know, they rely on guys like Bieber and Clevenger. Uh, Aaron Savali, a guy I really like who came up at the end of last year and was really, really good for them. They rely on those starters to give them length and, um, and to be really quality. Um, and they don't you know, have as many boppers as these other teams do besides Lindor and Ramirez. So that's a tough blow for them. And um, I think that's kind of leading – to possibly them selling. I, I don't, what do you think about that? Because like, if the Twins are up by 10 games in June, do you think Cleveland should say, hey, we got Mike Clevenger back. Maybe we'll make a run. Or you know, do you think that they should trade Clevenger and trade Lindor and just get absolute hauls back and then just try to compete in the next you know, two years? I think this is kind of the final year that they can actually do something. Obviously, like you said, you have some guys like Lindor, contracts running out in a couple years. I think, like we're talking about with Clevenger being injured – I don't think they're going to get off to a fast start by any means, especially because their top dog in the staff is already down. So I think the Twins are most likely it's pretty fair to say they're probably going to get out to a big lead early. And I think there could be a scenario where the Indians are just out of it by like that trade deadline and they can start moving some guys. I've said this to you before. I think prior to some of the moves in the offseason made like Kluber trading, you were still high on the Indians. I'm not as high on them. I think the Twins are going to run away with that division, and a lot of people talk about the White Sox. I don't think the White Sox are ready to compete with the Twins yet. I could see a scenario for sure where the Indians kind of just drop out of things and they realize that their window is kind of over and they start dealing guys. Well, you were right about the Indians. Um, I was high on them solely because I think that when they're healthy, that rotation – I was high on them when they had Kluber. You know, right. I went that a little bit after they didn't have him. I thought you know Kluber, Clevenger, Savali, Bieber, and Carrasco – I mean, they could win on every given night. Uh, so that's why I was high in Cleveland. Ramirez really came on at the end of the year last year. I think he'll have a more Jose Ramirez-like year uh, than what he had. Um, so that's why I was high on Cleveland. But now they've just had some things go wrong for them. And I, I don't know. I'd like to, I'm curious to see them in spring training. You know, it's, it's tough to get a read on teams in spring. But just to see what they look like offensively and see if they have any pitchers kind of blossom, like maybe like a Zach Plesak type. Uh, just one that, you know, they could say they can plug into that rotation and kind of come up for Clevenger in these first couple months. Um, should be interesting with them, but I'm not as high on them as I was before. And then to your point about the White Sox, uh, I mean, when you compare the White Sox and the Twins on paper, I feel like the White Sox are just the B version of the Twins. 
they have a bunch of big boppers and they don't have a ton of pitching. I think they have maybe a little bit more pitching ceiling. Um, if Kopech comes back and Giolito, you know, becomes an ace, because uh, I think, you know, he's pretty comparable to Barrios. Um, if one of those guys can kind of like ascend to that ace level instead of that high, you know, two kind of guy, um, I think it could be interesting. But I just don't think the White Sox really have any leg up on the Twins. The Twins won 100 games last year. So, I mean, picking the White Sox to be better than them, I think, is really ambitious. On the uh, on the radio show we do at the line, we have a baseball show we call the Sign Stealers. We we obviously got that name from the Houston Astros. We were doing like our I kind of really? I didn't know yeah, that. You no, guys I, just said yeah. Right. So we uh, we launched the show at the beginning of the semester, and we had no idea what to name. We were like, all right, let's just do Sign Stealers. It's, it's, it's the new thing. But I said on the show, is there like banging, like heavy metal or something? What'd you say? Is there like heavy metal music or like banging sounds in your introduction? We haven't set up a proper intro yet, but now that you say that, we probably should because I think that yeah, would. You guys, you guys should do like people getting electrocuted. Can you imagine? <laughs> by, by, by buzzers. Just the buzzers. Yeah. I, I, I said that on a previous episode. That's why George Springer looks so lively all the time. He's been getting electrocuted instead of actually being happy. Yeah, but what I was saying was basically on the radio show, I said like one of my bold takes was that the White Sox weren't going to make the postseason. And the guys in the show kind of kind of laughed at me, but I was like, if you think about the people on Twitter and the amount of people we have, like Sam Gutkins in our mention, in, in my mentions, talking about how the White Sox take I had was extremely cold. There's a lot of people that are high on them, but I don't think they're. I really don't think they're as good as people are giving them credit for. They made good moves, but I just don't think they're ready to compete yet. People see moves in the off season and they see it as like immediate success. Uh, it's not always that seamless of a transition. Uh, Seth, the 2015 Padres. Remember, they got Kimbrel, they got Justin Upton, they got Matt Kemp, they got James Shields. That was the infamous James Shields, Fernando Tatis trade, I think. They got all those guys in there, and then they were terrible. Um, not going to happen a lot. And uh, I think the White Sox are probably a little bit better than what the Padres were that year just because of guys like Mancada and Aloy Jimenez, just young guys who could probably make more of an impact next year. But winning the offseason doesn't always mean actually winning baseball games. I think they have to get off to a really hot start if they want to compete because they have to have people believe in them. Uh, they have to have some mojo and they have to have an identity from the early part of the season. They can't just be like 19 and 31 like the Nationals and then find it because they don't have that proven track record. They don't have all those veterans on the team that know how to overcome that. We're going to get into some over-unders now. We're just looking at a list from Bleacher Report. They gave us the uh, 2020 MLB win total odds. I'm going to start with the first over-under. Noah, you knew I was going to go from the start. New York Mets are at 86.5. I'm hammering the over on that one. I, I told you that as like an example. I didn't think you were actually going to do that. So you're hammering the over. I'm hammering the over 100%. I think regardless of whether or not the Mets make the playoffs, I think they have a very strong roster. They have a bullpen that's going to improve from last year. They still have a top five staff, a top five offense, or a top ten offense. So I'm going to hammer the over on that. I think the bullpen's going to bounce back to some degree at least. Whether they're a lot better or marginally better, we'll have to see. But – they won 86 games last year, and I think this team's only going to get better, so I'm going over on that one. I like it. Um, if I can make a quick comment, I think that's a pretty safe bet. Um, I think the floor for the Mets is probably about 86 wins, just because last year they had a lot go wrong, despite having like good amount of talent. I think they won 86. I don't think they're going to be worse than last year, because I think that team, you know, given the slump that they hit in May and June, and still being able to have 86 wins, despite some of those struggles and injuries and Edwin Diaz bowl games, I think that's pretty safe. Um, for mine, my first one, I use this as an example too. And by the way, shout out Vasilis Menendez. This was his idea. He wanted us to do an over-under segment. Usually I do my over-unders on Twitter before the season starts anyway, and um, it's something I like doing a lot too. Uh, this first one is for Mr. Weber at the school. 
so him and I and uh, opt out the other day, we're having a conversation about, you know, some of these over-unders. And he said he loved Toronto over 76. And now I went the completely other way. I have them under 76 to my first over-under this year. Now they can hit, like they can kind of hit, because they have four guys, you know, with Biggio, Bichette, uh, Guerrero, and Guriel that you can pretty much lock in to be like above average players this year. And they have high ceilings, all of them. But besides them, I don't see a whole lot of offense on this team. The catcher position is always like kind of like I, I, you can't ever really get a read on it. You know, it's Danny Jansen one game. It was Russell Martin for a while, Reese McGuire. And they just have a lot of bodies there, but they don't really have any set guy. Um, and then they don't really like have much of a staff at all beyond Ryu. And they have Tanner Rourke, Chase Anderson. Um, I'm just going off the top of my head. And then just a bunch of kids like Sean Reed Foley, Trent Thornton. Guys like that. So I, I don't really see that team winning more than 72, 73 games. Uh, keep in mind the Red Sox are still going to be a decent team. They still have some talent with Bogarts, Endeavors, Martinez. They're still going to be able to slug their way to probably 85 wins. And then you have two teams, the Yankees and Rays, that most people believe are going to be in the 90-win mark. I just don't see where 76 wins come from Toronto Blue Jays. That's my first under. I'm going to go with my first under now. I'm going to go with the St. Louis Cardinals or 88 and a half. Obviously, they played in the National League Championship Series against the Nationals last year. Division winner, I believe, in the NL Central. They didn't do anything to improve this offseason, as far as I'm concerned. And they lost Marcelo Zuna. I know Ozuna wasn't the, you know, he wasn't like the one of the best hitters in the National League last year by any means. I still think he's a very good bet. He's going to help out Atlanta a lot. And I don't know. I don't think that the Cardinals, I think they're getting older, obviously, like Adam Wainwright. It's another year of Adam Wainwright. He's older now. Uh, that offense, like I said, you lose Marcelo Zuna. You're already a team that wasn't even great to begin with. I think they kind of just took advantage of a NL Central that wasn't great. And I don't know who's going to win that division. I think I picked the Reds before, but I know it's not going to be the Cardinals. I'm going to go under on them. Do you agree? Yeah, I do agree. That's a good pick. Um, I don't know how we're going to do this if you know I'm going to pick some of the same teams that you did. I think I'm going to try to stay away from your teams this episode, but maybe in the future we could like have some parity there. Um, for this, my second one, this is going to be an over now. Um, this one, I think you can lock in, and we touched on them a little bit already this episode. I have the Twins over 90 and a half. Um, I think that with any division winner, if you're, unless you're just in a terrible division, you expect over 90 wins. Uh, you know, Usually, I think 93 is the prototypical like division winner. Like 93, 94 wins will usually get you a two-seed, three-seed in, um, in a conference or whatever it's called in the league, American National League. Um, and I see that with the Twins. I think they won 101 games last year. I think having them as a, you know, swinging basically 12 games to go under that, I just don't see that happening. There's too much talent there. That lineup one through nine can just mash. Um, their pitching staff, I think they upgraded it. I don't think it's necessary an upgrade, necessarily an upgrade in the postseason because it's kind of like these the fourth, fifth starters with Homer Bailey, Rich Hill, guys like that who are just innings eaters. But in the regular season, having guys who are like competent like that, and can go out there and give you six good innings against the Kansas City Royals on June 20th. Having a guy like that, there's some value to that, and they're going to win some of those games that maybe uh, they wouldn't have won in previous years with some AAA kid you know, going up and throwing four innings and giving up six runs. I think there's some value to that with the Twins, and I just think that's an easy over. You know, If we're picking them to win the division, I think that you can lock in over 90, 90 wins. I was thinking about talking about them too. I think it's ridiculous. Ninety and a half is their over under line right now. Just, I mean, they won one hundred one games last year. The Yankees are better suited for the postseason, but the Yankees aren't eleven games better than the Twins. I agree, hundred percent. I'm going to go with one more pick here. 
Colorado Rockies are at 74 right now. I'm going to take the under, and I'm going to take that for reasons we're going to talk about later. We have a little bit of a, a hypothetical trade that Noah proposed. Um, I yes, think maybe it's back. It it's, is back. People like that, so I think this yeah. is a good segment. I think in all likelihood, the Rockies are out of contention by the trade deadline. And whether it's Arenado, whether it's Trevor Story, whether it's both of those guys, I think one of them is going to be dealt. And they're the two focal points in that lineup. So I just – I don't think they're going to be competing in any way by the trade deadline. And at that point, they're going to want to get rid of one of those guys, get some value out of them, get some prospects or pieces in return. So I'm going to go under in them. Okay. That's pretty interesting. You know, I think a 74 win under is always a little bit of a gamble. Uh, and I thought the same thing with Toronto when I picked them. You really have to look at that – like team and just say, I don't really see much besides a couple of things. And I, I agree with you. I think that they're pretty flawed in most aspects of the game. And, um, you know, they kind of gave up on that team last year. They just tanked the final two months of the season. And I think that sets a bad tone. Uh, and I could definitely see them making some moves um, with some stars in that roster too. So I think that's good. Uh, my third one, I have this as an over. Now this one, you're going to be surprised at because I haven't really expressed a lot of love for this team. Uh, over the course of the offseason, you might be mad at it a little bit. And this isn't saying that I think they're going to be a playoff team. I think they're going to be in the wild card hunt, and they're going to win some games just based on that at the end of the year because they're going to be playing harder against teams like Colorado, who really have nothing to play for. And I think that a Joe Girard led team always felt like a six win. I have the Phillies over 85 and a half. I, I don't know how you feel about that. I know they're kind of like a fourth-place team, and I can definitely still see that. But Joe Girardi-led teams, just I feel like they always win like 87, 88 games. You know, I think that's just kind of the number. The 2015 Yankees weren't a good team by any stretch of the imagination, but he managed really well that year. They had enough talent to get the 87 wins. And I think the Phillies just, if they have a couple things break right for them, they could be in that range. I don't necessarily think they're going to be a playoff team. Um, that's for, you know, later in the in spring training when we do our playoff picks. But um, I think that team just has a lot of talent, um, just raw talent, you know, with Harper, uh, Didi Gregorius, JT Romuto, Nola and Wheeler are top of rotation. Maybe that bullpen gets a little bit better. They have talent, and usually teams with a good manager and they're you know pretty pretty talented. I just have like a general thing like they're going to f- figure out a way to get over eighty five. So I, I didn't want to touch that one just because I really didn't know what to think of it. I'm really not scared of the Phillies. Aaron Nola, Zach Wheeler at the top of the rotation. We kind of have the same feeling on Zach Wheeler. He's a good pitcher when he's on, but he's not consistent. Yeah, he's a three. He's yeah. like a three on a really good team, and he's the Phillies two, which makes you a little bit concerned. But like, it's a weird team to read because Nola was a Cy Young candidate, and you think like, if okay, Wheeler pitches like Wheeler showed he could pitch in half season with the Mets, and Nola's that guy, and then they have a third starter emerge and become halfway decent, and then they have you know Harper have a big year, and Dee is really good there with Girardi, and Girardi manages the bullpen well, and you just start like talking yourself into saying they could be an eighty-seven win team, you know. I am going to stay in the East, flip over to the American League. Boston Red Sox, 89 wins. I know Cam doesn't want to hear this, but I'm going to go under in the Boston Red Sox just because yes. they lost. They lost. I mean, they lost two big pieces, obviously. Mookie Betts is the and best Brock player. Holt. The Red Sox Twitter would make you think that Brock Holt was, uh, was Ted Blitz. That is true. And considering now Mookie Betts is gone, he would have had a bigger part in the lineup. It obviously used David Price. By no means was he the Red Sox ace, but he had stability to that rotation, even though he was – slightly above average when he pitched for the Red Sox. I know he didn't pan out to that massive contract he got. And you get back Alex Verdugo. We see Alex Verdugo's hurt. We don't know if he's going to immediately make an impact on the team. 
And Chris Sale came out of the gates firing like 82 last year for whatever reason. I know probably the World Series hangover had a lot to do with that. He was pitching into November. Um, I don't see how this team, this is an 89 win team. I know they last year they really had a terrible start with that road trip to begin the year. And they kind of picked it up at the end of the year, but it was too late, obviously, with the Yankees comfortably winning the division and you know the Rays right behind them in the wild card spot. I think 89 wins is a little high for the Red Sox, so I'm going to take the under on that, and I think that's going to make you happy. Yeah, I do like that. I do agree on it. I don't think they're going to be as bad as the people are portraying. I think people are like saying they're going to be a below 500 team. I think that they'll figure a way to get to 84, 85 wins. Um, I don't see the manager blowing up. He's a veteran in the game. I don't see him blowing up and having like a Bobby Valentine type season. <clears throat> There's some guys in that team who play really hard every day. There's a lot of talent with Devers, Bogarts, Martinez in the order. Um, they're pretty well-rounded in terms of position players, even without bets. You know, Verdugo might give them a little something. Maybe Ben Attendee is a bigger year. Vasquez is a decent catcher. Um, in the bullpen, I think Barnes and Workman are pretty good. Um, Eduardo Rodriguez, I think, will have a big year as a starter. So I think there's makings for that team to be pretty solid, but like you said, 89 wins is a little bit steep with the Yankees and Rays in that division. Um, my next one is an under. This is the Pittsburgh Pirates under 70 and a half. I think this team's just really bad. Their payroll's at 44 million right now. That's a joke. I, I just, I have nothing that I really like about this team. I think Josh Bell's their best player and he's flawed in a little bit of ways. He's good. Don't get me wrong, but he's not some superstar that some people will portray, uh, portray him as. You know, he's, if you really look deep into the numbers, he's like a little bit better than Luke Boyd. I mean, he had bigger counting stats, but the on base and the way to run's created plus. Like, I just, I could see some regression coming for him. Um, I don't see a lot in the staff. I don't see anything really in terms of like hitting. I mean, I think Ryan Reynolds is okay. Uh, Josh Reynolds is, I mean, Ryan, he's better than okay. Uh, that sounds, that's more of a casual take for me. He's a good player, but that's probably their second best position player. Now that they traded Starling Marte, and they're in a the division where the four other teams are trying to win. And um, I think it's going to be hard for them to get to 71 wins. I think they're more of like a 66 and 96 type team. Last team I'm going to go with. I have a couple that I kind of want to talk about. I'm going to go with the Texas Rangers. I don't know if I really like this one. They're at 78 and a half. They were a 78 win team last year. This year they acquired Corey Kluber. They have a new stadium. I think I'm going to give them the over, but I don't know how confident I am in that. And I don't really know, like, they didn't do much this offseason. I think they signed a couple of guys to the rotation, some, like, some lower guys aside from Corey Kluber, who they traded for, obviously. Um, we've talked about it on basically every episode for the past five or six weeks. We've, we have no idea what's going to happen in the AL West just because of the situation with the Astros. The Angels got better with Anthony Rendon. We don't know how much better they're going to be. Uh, the A's, like you said a couple episodes ago, like every other year, they're pretty good. You know, they're always kind of in that hunt. They're always a wild card yeah, team. Yeah, I'm thinking about taking that as an under. What yeah. do you think about that? Just to steer off. Do you think they can be an under 89.5? Who are you talking about, the 89.5? The A's. The A's? I was thinking about touching it. I could see it. That's really not a bad <laughs> one. Do you want to take it? All right, go back to your point. Sorry, I don't want to. I mean, I, I was kind of just rambling. There's not. It's the Texas Rangers. You don't have too much to talk about. Obviously, they have some big boppers out there. They've kind of been a team that's kept the roster relatively the same the past few years. Um, Which isn't necessarily a good thing. They've been like a 70-win team. That's what I'm saying. Like, it, it's, You can't talk about them too much. It's not like they've been making drastic changes to the – That's like, hey, Elvis Andrews is batting third again. He's been there since 2012. It's, it's ridiculous. <laughs> they've never won. I wouldn't be surprised if Adrian Beltre came back and played this year, but – yeah, I think I'm yeah, gonna. No. Is Josh Hamilton available, or is he? Uh, I he think he might stuff? be on the Angels payroll still, but we'll have to uh, <laughs> we'll have to look at that. I'm gonna. I don't know why I took the over because I'm kind of talking trash about them. I think they'll just barely get over it. 
Uh, no pun intended. Take your last one. Um, I'm going to go Houston over 97. I can't believe I'm doing that, but just all the stuff that's been going on. I thought that they really have like a dark cloud over them, and they have. But just like hearing Correa talk and these players just seem pissed off about it. And this isn't going to go away. And I said it's either going to amount to one of two things. They're going to have a mediocre year. They're going to have a dark cloud over them. It's going to be really hard for them to get through it. Or they're going to have a cause to play for. And they're going to get really pissed off. And they're going to say, you don't think that we were good enough to win without sign stealing? And we're going to show you. And I, I'm just being a cynical Yankee fan. I'm just going to say over 97, they're going to win 100 games, probably flat, 99, 100 games. And they're going to win that division just because I think that they're the most clear-cut team there. Like, I can't take the Anaheim Angels to win the division. I, I tried talking myself into it, and I just see no reason to do that, uh, given that Houston has a lot more talent than them. And um, I just think they're more proven. They know how to get to the big game. The Angels haven't proven that at all. Uh, so just based on that alone, I'm just going to take Houston with my fifth one. I'm not that confident in it, but um, I think that's just, like, something that, that could really happen. I, I don't know. That's ballsy. We'll have to see. All right. Now, Tyler, so today – I saw a cut from Chris Russo on the High Heat MLB Network. Uh, it's a TV show I watch with my dad every day. I listen to him on my way home sometimes on the radio. Uh, really, really good sports talk show guy. One of my favorite guys to listen to every day. And um, every year, he's always in on the Mets before the season. He's always like, I think the Mets are going to have a big year. I like their pitching staff. I like them in big games. I trust the Grom. I trust Syndergaard. And then every year, they kind of let him down. And um, I saw him talk about the Mets today on iHeat, and I just sent you that audio clip. I want you to play it for the audience, and then we're going to react to it. I'm a little scared. I listened to like the first 10 seconds. I don't want to Numa. I don't want to get scared because I'm You're hopeful we're Mets this I'm year. Trying but... to get a reaction out of you. Nah, yeah. I mean, if he if he was singing their praises the past few years, then maybe it'll work the no, opposite. He always does. He's yeah. always all in on the Mets, and then he. Uh, I think he he taught it back this year. All right, yeah, I'm going to play it right now. You know, a lot of people love the Mets. You know, they think Cespedes is going to give them something. They love their, you know, their rotation with their three, four, five combinations of Porcello and Walker and Max and Stroman, and of course the big two at the top of the rotation, Patances. Uh, they like that too. Everybody swears about Rojas. You know, the Met problem. You know, again, they, they got a black cloud over. Them. I mean, that is essentially the Met problem. I mean, you, you, they ju it just never breaks right for the Mets. This is a franchise that in 33 years have made the playoffs six times. This is a major market team that in 33 years has been in the playoffs six times. I mean, that's, you know, that's pathetic. That's all there's nothing else you can say. That's very poor. And, you know, to sit there and say that the Mets this year are going to be a playoff team in a pretty competitive division is asking a lot. I mean, is Syndergaard finally going to be Robin to DeGrom's Batman? Who knows? I mean, you know, it was Rosario's second half of the year last year a thing that we're going to now expect? Who knows? Alonzo's not hitting 50 homers again, so you're going to have to figure out where you're going to pick up a little with this offense. But I don't like their center field situation. Nemo and Marisnik, I do not like. You cannot count under any circumstances, under any circumstances. You can't count on a left fielder, Cespedes. I don't care if he talks to the media or not. And Conforto is a guy that, you know, some days you love him and some days you don't. Uh, I think they're an okay team. Uh, I don't think they're 90. I think they're a little bit like the Cubs. Uh, I think the Mets will be... On the periphery, and you're not going to spend a ton of money in July either, which does disturb you. The Mets are going to be in a situation where they're going to win between 83 and 87 games, which I don't think is going to be good enough to make the playoffs in the NL. I'm not going to give you playoff teams yet. they got a month to go. I'll worry about that on March 26th. But right now, I can tell you right this minute, 
I'm not picking the Mets to make the playoffs. And maybe that would do them some good because every time I pick them to win the World, go to the World Series, as I've done here, they go 82 and 80 and fire a manager. I just don't think they're that good. You're asking too many components to, to click. Alonzo, the top two in the rotation, Rosario getting something out of center field. Maybe Cespedes had something. Will Lowry play a game outside of seven at bats that he got last year for 10 million bucks? I just don't think the Mets, too many questions. All right, so after seeing that the first time, two things to say. One, don't pronounce it Rosario. Two, don't pronounce it Nemo. Nah, that's dude, the, he can't pronounce names in general. Nah, yeah, no, nah, I know. That's I know, not, but just Mets, aside from that, I, I think that he really hit the nail on the head. I, I disagree with him in the sense I did say the Mets are going to make the playoffs. You know, I don't like – I'm not some overly biased Mets fan that said no, they're going to win 105 games. You're, but, you're, I'm more of a homer about the Yankees than you are. Yeah, Mets, I mean, but. I think that it's a – I think it's a good team. That On paper, they're a very good team. I know there's question marks. He nailed it with the whole thing about there's a, always a black cloud over the Mets. 33 years, they made the postseason six times, whatever he said. Obviously, that's not acceptable for a team that plays in New York, the same town as the Yankees. And every reason he said was valid. The center field situation is not ideal. Conforto's a guy where I'll watch him play in a series, and I'll, I'll be like, Dude, this guy needs to this guy needs to go figure out his swing in AAA. Like, he has, looks like he has no idea what he's doing. And then he'll spend a couple weeks where he's hitting like four or five hundred, and it's we think we have Keith Hernandez back. Those points are all valid. I just think that we've kind of seen a bit of a change in fortune for the Mets recently. I know. The injury problem wasn't terrible last year. We had Cespedes, you know, there was a wild boar encounter. He fell on a hole. Jed Lowry died for an entire year. I mean, those are two things that it kind of always happens to the Mets. But aside from that, guys stayed healthy. And the biggest problem was the bullpen last year. I think this team is, we've talked about this before, where some guys are going to improve and some guys are going to regress. I don't think Pete Alonso is going to hit 53 home runs again. I don't think McNeil is going to hit 330, 340 again. I think he'll be in that range. J.D. Davis might not have as special of a year as he had. But then similarly, guys like Patances are going to step up and help the bullpen. Diaz is going to bounce back to some degree. Familia, I'm not too sold on this year. I haven't been sold on him for a few years. You're not? Why not? Just because he hasn't been the same pitcher since <laughs> he was coughing up home runs to Alex Gordon in the 2015 World Series in Kansas City. But I think that what he said was fair. And I think you can kind of just go one of two ways to what he said. You could say they're not going to have as many ifs as they normally do, and they'll make the postseason or for the reasons he listed, they're not. So I, I think it's fair. I think that was. I think he handled that really well compared to a lot of people who just throw out the LOL Mets, you know, joke of a franchise thing. But he handled that fairly, and hopefully with the way he's predicted the Mets in previous years and they haven't made the postseason, it's going to work the opposite way. Uh, again, this audio is courtesy of MLB Network. I want to thank them for that. No, Thanks, so guys. Please, we're just sort of playing their audio. Um, but I, I like every point that you touched on, and I think it's all fair. And um like you said, with um, possible regressions, you know, you could see maybe some regression with McNeil and Alonzo. But then again, they're both really, really talented players. And um, I think it's fair to expect them to have big years. I think they probably will. I think I can see them both representing the Mets in the All-Star team. Um, to go away from Russo, like to raise a counterpoint, here's what I'd say about the Mets. They have a two-time Cy Young Award winner in Jacob DeGrom, who's the best pitcher in the National League. They have a top... 10-15 pitcher in the National League could be top five based on sheer talent in Syndergaard. They have competent starters behind them. They're not great, but Stroman, Mats, Porcello, Waka, those guys, if you can get two of the four of them just to be competent, you know, have like a mid, you know, I don't even want to say mid threes, but like four ERA, just like keep, like keep you in the game, you know, for the most part in, in most games and just give you a chance to win. 
I think it's reasonable to expect that. And with some guys maybe having bigger years, like Nimmo having more of a 2018 type year, or Rosario having, you know, what he did in the second half last year translate, if certain things like that break right, I think there's reason to believe the Mets could win the division. And I think that's what a lot of people are banking on when you pick them in the playoffs. And um, obviously the big key is going to be the bullpen. We've touched on that pretty much every podcast we've done. Um, I expect he has to have a big year. I think he'll bounce back. I don't think he's some mental midget who can't handle New York. I think that he just got hammered in a couple of games last year, and the Mets fans just really turned on him. Um, I think that's correctable um, with an offseason and being a little bit more comfortable. Uh, I think there's a lot. You know, Cano had a bad year last year. You can look at like things last year and say, this thing didn't break right for us when you're the Mets. And maybe this year some of those things do break right. And, you know, you could kind of balance it out. You know, So I, I think that Russo's points are valid. I like him a lot, like I've said. Um, you know, I, I value his opinion, and um, I enjoy listening to him. But at the same time, you know, I think you have to look at it from all sides. Yeah, and real quick, before we get into some questions, when I said that I could see McNeil and Alonzo regressing, I don't mean McNeil goes from a 330 hitter to a 260 hitter. Oh, I no, just no, mean no. like – I understand. I said the same thing about LeMayu. I yeah. think he could regress a little bit, but he'll be like a 310 and it'll hit 20 homers versus hitting 330 and hitting 27. You know, that's that's regression. Like, they're still going to have good years, but they're not going to be as, like, otherworldly as they were last year. Yeah, and I think that people kind of underrate the production that the Mets offense can give you. There's some guys in there that can kind of act as an X-factor like Conforto. The average wasn't where we want Conforto's to be, but he was a guy who had very good OBP, uh, good OPS. He produced, he had, like, third, over 30 home runs, uh, close to 100 RBIs. They have a very good offense right there. So I'm very excited about that because the Mets teams were frustrating to watch recently, like the 2016s and 2017s. They literally couldn't hit anything. And last year, actually watching them consistently produce offensively was nice. So unless you have any final points from our boy Russo, I have uh, some questions that we can get into. Well, what I'll say about having a good offense, when I think of a good offense, I think of balance. I think of power. I think of on-base skills. I think of a couple constants at the top who set the tone. And I think of a lot of wild card, or not wild cards, but just bodies who could be way like above average hitters. And you kind of just have some interchangeable parts towards the bottom. You know, you could play matchup and you just have a bunch of competent guys. That's what, you know, I've enjoyed watching with the Yankees in recent years. I think that's what the Twins had last year. I think that's what the Red Sox had when they won. And I think the Mets have that potential to have that kind of offense where, you know, they have McNeil and Alonzo at the top and those guys are constant you know all-stars and those are the guys repping your team at the all-star game but then you have guys like jd davis steps in one night and it's a big night and you win because of that conforto goes on a week-long pair and you win because of that maybe cano bounces back maybe ramos gets hot for a period or rosario gets hot and when you have offenses that have a lot of guys who can produce on a given night i think that just makes you all the more dangerous because you know you don't want to have a weakness like i always say you're as strong as your weakness link and you don't want to have a weakness in that order because then pitchers can target that. And in the NL, you don't have the DH yet, so you already have that in the ninth spot. So the Mets, I think, have one of the more complete lineups in the NL, and I think that's going to be a big advantage for you this year. All right, so before we get into our questions and the trivia question for today's episode, we are going to go into a hypothetical trade. Noah's been uh, he's been uh, he's been in the lab with these hypothetical trades recently. You know, this is what he lives for. He wants to be a GM someday. So. Noah, tell us the deal you have constructed. Yeah, so this one, I don't know how realistic it is. It's, it's realistic in some aspects, but the return for certain teams might not be. Um, that's up for interpretation. That's why we want you guys to react to it. Uh, tell me if you like it. Tell me if I'm an idiot. and You can do that. It won't offend me. <laughs> I like the feedback. Uh, this trade, I create my Yankees. 
for the first of this trade. Um, so recently, Trevor Story signed a two-year, $27.5 million deal with the Rockies. He had two years of control left anyway, so this pretty much buys out arbitration. It lowers the luxury tax hit, and it pretty much just makes his contract even more tradable, uh, maybe a little bit more valuable, knowing that you don't have to go through the arbitration process and numbers kind of fluctuate. You can plan your payroll around having that cap figure with Trevor Story. And um, the Rockies going into kind of like this rebuild mode, we think they're about to, um, with Arenado's comments. And given the fact they made the playoffs two years in a row, and last year they had a really down year, they don't have a lot of young talent in the major league level right now. They have guys like David Dahl and, and Story, uh, ironically, but you know not a ton of guys. Brendan Rodgers hasn't broken in yet. Uh, so I think the Rockies could look, off the, look to sell off some pieces before they leave in free agency. Uh, so I have Trevor Story in this hypothetical trade going to the New York Yankees, where the Yankees could play him at short. They could slide Torres over to second, LeMayu over to third, or LeMayu to first, you know, whatever it ends up being. The same thing that they kind of did last year when Didi came back. I have him going to the Yankees, and then I have the Rockies getting back Jonathan Loisica from the Yankees. Uh, just the one-for-one one right there, but don't worry, that's not the trade. That would be completely unrealistic because Story is a top, you know, 30 player in the league, and Loisica is just a pitching prospect. And, you know, you could maybe throw in like a Lucas Gill type to this trade too. He's a Yankees prospect who's got a really big arm. Uh, you could kind of, the Yankees have probably seven or eight guys who kind of fit that same mold of like high ceiling arm in you know the lower levels that you could kind of uh, swap in there. I thought the Rockies might want somebody who's at the major league level, and that's what Malazka is. Uh, he has club control, I think, through 2024. Uh, so the Rockies would be gaining more years of control in this deal. But then that, this would be a three-team trade where I'd be sending Andujar to the Phillies uh, as part of this deal. And then the Rockies send Scott Kingery to the, uh, sorry, the Phillies trade Scott Kingery to the Rockies. So my explanation for this is that the DH is coming to the National League probably in 2021, and Joe Girardi absolutely raved about Miguel Andujar when he was with the Yankees, and he knew he could rake. He was really confident in Andujar. He loves the head on his shoulders. I remember watching countless interviews, Girardi speaking, uh, you know, Andujar's praises. I just I think that Girardi would love to get his hands on Andujar, especially if Cashman was trying to trade him. Uh, once you know Andujar shows that he's healthy this year, especially if he's producing for the Yankees and the Rockies go into sell mode midseason. I think this would be a hypothetical trade for July. Um, and the Phillies could bring in Andujar as their third baseman this year, and then they could you know, see if maybe he's improved, if not playing in a different position, and then make him their full-time DH next year. Because I think we can agree that the Phillies are trying to win over the next five years, not just trying to win in 2020, and Andujar would help them do that. And then the Rockies in this situation, I have them getting Kingery, who was a near three-win player last year. He's got control through 2024 and then two club options, so really 2026. And for a productive player like him and who's young and who has a high ceiling, I think that's a really, really good return for the Rockies for two years of story who's likely out of there anyway. So the Rockies, just to recap, Rockies get Scott Kingery and Jonathan Lewisica, so they get a controllable arm and a controllable position player, both with high ceilings. Uh, the Phillies get Andujar. They get a guy they can lock into the middle of their order, um, you know, who knows Dini Gregorius and knows uh, guys over there, over Girardi, obviously. And the Yankees get a superstar, really. And, I, you know, maybe that's a little bit strong. But they get a star player in story and a guy that they can hopefully, you know, plug into the middle of that order and, um, you know, put on championship teams. I think the deal makes sense, kind of just like the – Well, keep in mind, this is hypothetical trades. You remember the one we did with Bryant and Scherzer? Like, yeah. That's not realistic. Well, yeah. So. I think I just think that the way I look at it is I know Philly fans, especially after coming to Penn State, that just I mean, those guys absolutely love Scott Kingery. And I think they would basically have to get like a top 10 player in the MLB to give up Scott Kingery. I mean, those guys love him there. 
but top ten players. If, if you Scott think Kingery, about, oh, he's good. I mean, uh, remember, what, remember what Zach said? Right he wasn't sure if he'd give up Scott Kingery for Zach uh, for uh, Molnar Nato. He said something yeah, like which that. Is sickening, because I can tell you, any GM in this league would give up Scott Kingery for a superstar player. I think you'd give up most of your star players for Nolan Arenado. I mean, he, he's – I think there's like 10 guys you don't trade for Nolan Arenado. It obviously depends on the team's roster and whatnot, but – And the contract. You know, yeah, so yeah. like the Pittsburgh Pirates aren't going to take on Arenado. If we're going, going talent-wise, then not, then yeah, but obviously those reasons you list. Yeah, so I think it's, it's a good trade. It seems somewhat fair to the other sides. I think if you look at it as the Phillies, you know, maybe they don't want to give up Scott Kingery because those guys love him, but Rockies do get a good piece, like – as much as the Phillies love Scott Kingery, I think that he would do very well out there in a potential rebuild for the Rockies. And then I don't really know enough about Jonathan Loizaga. I know the Yankees fans in my room, and uh, you know something about that guy, but I can't comment too much on that. But I, he I, I throws a hundred. He throws a hundred. He could be a high level bullpen guy. Uh, he's currently a starter, but he can swing. So I think there's value in that. Yeah, for sure. I just think that uh, I think that we definitely hear about the trade a lot from the Philly fanatics, but. I have some questions I want to go into now. Actually, some pretty good questions this week. I don't know if you read much of them, but uh, I, uh, I glanced at them. Uh, I, gl- I glanced at them, but yeah. I didn't want to like think about opinions. Yeah, I kind of I like coming up with them on the spot. So yeah. So our first one, actually, we should do trivia because that's how we always kick it off. Brian sent us in the trivia question for this week: How many seasons did Mariano Rivera lead the league in saves? Um. Let's see. Well, he pitched. I think he became a closer in like '99. I want to say uh, he pitched to 2013. Yeah, I'll go eight. I was thinking eight originally, also, and when I got the response, I was very surprised. Brian says three. The answer That's is it. three. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So I, I at first I, I was walking to class and I got the question from him and I, I actually thought the same thing. My first number I was thinking about seven eight range, and then as I started thinking about it, I was like maybe it's a little too high. So. Like just three as a Yankee fan, you've watched him for most of not most of his career, obviously. But once you really started getting into the Yankees, you were watching that guy. Does three make sense to you? Because based on the way he's talked about, it, it seems a little low for me. Well, the thing about save leaders per year, they change based on like how good the team is. You know, if they're in position to win, and also if the team's like routing. You know, if you're up eight one, it's not a save situation. And the Yankees during a lot of those years were a team that was probably up in a lot of those games. So I'm not that surprised by it, but. At the same time, you know, everybody knows he's the greatest closer of all time. He's the first unanimous Hall of Famer. I thought he would have had more than that. I thought maybe eight was a little bit high when I said that. I was initially thinking like six, but I, I thought since he was asking that, it might be a little bit higher. But, yeah, I'm surprised, but not not too much. So now let's go into our regular questions. Brian, thanks for the questions, man. No problem. Yeah. Good, so... job, good job, Brian. We need some <laughs> music for him. We need like a Brian's trivia yeah, can music. Yeah, can uh, you provide a question and a theme song yeah, for next episode? Okay. Yeah, so, uh, no, the questions today come from the Sports Blitz group chat, which is our uh, sports radio show at the line 90.7 FM at Penn State. So, first question comes from Danny Ehrlich. This is kind of a funny one just because he's a he's the biggest Nationals homer, biggest Daniel Hudson homer you'll hear of. He asks, is Daniel Hudson a top five reliever in the National League East? Uh, let's go through them. Um, that, that one I did not read. Uh, so, let's see. Will Harris is better. Doolittle's better. Just on that his team alone. So, that's two. Uh, Batantis is better three. Diaz is better four. Um, I don't. Lugo might be better five. I think Lugo, I think Lugo is definitely better than Daniel Hudson. I think I mean Daniel um, Hudson is pretty have to look good. At but... The numbers, but I think Lugo is better. Yeah, and Hudson was really good at the end of the year, but I think the overall body of work will tell you that uh, Hudson is not top five. Philly, I 
I think you could argue he'd be the best on Philly. I mean, I think you could. There's some guys who have something to say about that, but um, like, so like Sir Anthony Dominguez, for one. David Robertson, if he's healthy, but we can't really say that yet. Uh, what's the other team? The Braves? Oh, God, yeah, no way. Will Smith and uh, Will Smith and uh, who's the other guy? Uh, Mark, Mark Melanson? No, nah, he's not better than those guys. You like Mark Melanson still? I think he's just like better than Daniel Hudson. <laughs> I think he's great, but I think he's better than Daniel Hudson. Mark Melanson was always a guy. He was good, and then I, if I'm not mistaken, didn't he kind of fall off? I think he was traded to like the Giants, and he never really panned out. I'm trying to look at his numbers real quick. 2019, he well, had a three six one. I think he has one just based on 2018 and his talent level. I think he's still really like elite. Yeah. I think if I had to pick one for my team next year, I'd pick Diaz. Um, for two, I'd probably pick Will Smith. For three, I'd probably lean Dellen if he's healthy, but uh, Will Harris would be a good option too. And then. Like you said, Lugo maybe um, would be fourth or fifth there. I think Hudson's probably in like the seven to eight range. So I think he's good. I'm not trying to knock Daniel Hudson here, especially if he's a big Hudson fan. He got some huge outs in October, and I have respect for those guys who have balls in those big games, but um, I wouldn't put him top five. Danny, thank you for the question. I know it's not what you want to hear, and I'm sure you'll have some strong opinions on that take from both of us. Next question comes from Adric Woodard. This is a very good one. This is probably one of the better questions we've gotten because it's just pretty in-depth. Adric asks, what is the impact or what impact will the scandal have on the players union moving forward and the new collective bargaining agreement? That's a great question. That's a great question. Um, if anything, it's not going to change the collective bargaining agreement because I think that overall, if they suspended the players, it would become a big issue with Tony Clark. And I think that would hurt um, negotiations the last thing MLB wants is a strike because that means they're losing out on revenue and it becomes a whole thing. They, they don't want that at all. Um, so from, from a perspective, I, it's weird because they're in a tough spot right now. The players' union is pretty much divided because the Astros players and certain players in the league will fight saying that this was – Rob Manfred laid this out as a punishment, that it's going to come from above. These are the guys overseeing the team. The manager is overseeing the team. The GM is. The owner is going to get fined. These are the guys who are on the team. We're not going to find individual players because there's not enough evidence to decipher which players deserve heftier suspension. So you're going to have guys who argue that. And then you're going to have players like Trevor Bauer and Mike Clevenger and, you know, really anybody you ask, Mike Trout, even Aaron Judge, everyone who's saying, like, that this was wrong, who said they want them suspended. And that's going to create a divide within the union. And that just becomes a problem in its, in its own. But at the same time, I don't really think it's going to change much with the negotiations. I think the negotiations are pretty much going to be about player pay and the free agency. Remember the last couple of years we've had like really dull free agent markets. That's I think what's pissed the players as a whole off more. So I think the negotiations will be centered around that a little bit more. Um, Manfred killed them in the, in the last CBA. He absolutely destroyed them. I mean, they were more worried about getting omelets at spring training and, you know, making sure they're taken care of at spring training than they were about uh, the free agent market. Right. So players don't really have a leg to stand on uh, in terms of that, but uh, it's interesting. Do you, do you have a take on it? It's a good question. I don't because I'm just not as well-versed, especially with that kind of stuff that you are, so I'm glad you kind of answered that mostly. But whatever reasons that you pointed out, they make sense. I, I honestly just – even reading that question, it's like that's not something I was expecting to have on our podcast it's, considering – It's a great question. It is, no, it's an incredible question. I wish I was better prepared for it. You know, If I could do 10 minutes of homework, I could probably give you a better answer. I was rambling a little bit. But um, it's, it's just in a really weird spot. It's weird because the the 29 other clubs are going to have more weight over the one club, but they're supposed to be, you know, everybody in together and they're going to have players and there's players on the Astros who are, you know, vital in that. I know Altuve has a role in it. 
And um, that's that's just going to create a divide with the players. And um, I don't really think that's going to have as much impact with the negotiations with the owners um, as it will just with the players amongst themselves. Adric, thank you for that question. Next question is from Matt Knob. He asks, I want to know out of all the minor league contracts signed this winter, spring training, non-roster invitees, who will make a big league club and have a big impact? So I don't think he's going to make the big league club right away, but a guy we're going to see with the Astros in 2020 is Forrest Whitley. And I remember from the first time I watched him in spring training last year when he pitched against the Mets, I was just so impressed by his stuff. He was a young guy. He was kind of like that Chris Paddock type where he went out there and he, he just wanted to get you. You know, he had good velocity. His fastball moved a ton. He had a good slider. Or not his fastball. His curveball moved a ton. He had a good slider. And obviously with the absence of Garrett Cole now, I think that the Astros rotation can use a little bit of that presence in there. And Forrest Whitley is one of those guys that I definitely think can help. Another guy I want to talk about is Josh Harrison. Do you remember Josh Harrison? He was a, uh, I believe he was an all-star for the Pittsburgh Pirates oh, for yeah. at least a oh, couple yeah, of years. So you, you went the prospect route pretty much. Yeah, because I – yeah. So he was invited, you know, for particularly camp. Yeah, I think he, I think he's like on this. Uh, the list that Matt sent me, he's on the list of like he's not doesn't have like a roster invite, or whatever. But he is at the big league camp. And then the other guy is Josh Harrison. He's a Philly right now, I believe. So some of the Philly guys are gonna like this. 2019, 137 at bats. He hit 175. You know, he's kind of tailed off a little bit. I remember the Mets were in trade talks for him in like 2016 or 2017, something like that. You know, the Mets <laughs> yeah. are always in for that like slightly above average that, right? middle infielder, but. In his career, in just about 3,000 at-bats, he's a two, he's a 273 hitter, 53 home runs, 277 RBIs, a 714 OPS, which obviously isn't ideal. Then again, he's a middle infielder. He's a good utility player. I think he could be a guy that potentially adds depth to that Phillies team. I don't know how strong their bench is. I know there's some guys in the infield that kind of regressed last year. Reese Hoskins didn't have a great year. So I could see him kind of contributing in a way. I don't know if he's going to necessarily get invited because his career is kind of trending in the downward way just because the past two years he really hasn't done anything. Those are two guys that kind of just jumped out to me on the list. If you have any uh, that you could think of that you've looked up, go for it. Yeah, Harrison's not a bad one. He's pretty much what Sean Rodriguez was for them last year. Uh, so I, I think he was halfway decent for them. Uh, so, so I could see that. I know Girardi liked them back when he was with the Yankees. I think the Yankees were in talks with them in 2017 too. Um, but nothing ended up happening. Um, let's see. The only one – I don't have a list in front of me to be honest, but I'm just going off memory. I know Chris Iannetta for the Yankees was a non-roster invite. Uh, with Sanchez getting hurt all the time, I, I can see him coming up for 15, 20 games. I think he's a pretty good framer. He might be a decent, you know, defensive ad for the Yankees. Uh, Greg Bird is a non-roster invite yeah. from the Rangers. I think he, if he makes the majors, he gets 1.3 million. I want to say. And if Bird can, you know, this is an evergreen statement. You know, we say this every year. But if he could be healthy, he's probably going to pencil in for at least 20 home runs. I think, you know, not making any money, there's some value to that. Um, the one I'll go with is probably as the biggest one is Brandon Morrow. I know he was just signed by the Cubs as a non-roster invite. Um, Morrow, two years ago with LA, or three years ago now, 2017, he was just lights out. He was amazing. Uh, until uh, he got to the World Series and the Astros knew it was coming. Uh, he was amazing. Uh, so uh, I was really blown away by him. The Cubs signed him. He's been kind of a disappointment, but he's got a big arm, and I, I could see him having a big year. Relievers are so year-to-year, -year and you know they just need – one five-game stretch at the beginning of the year to get hot. You know, that's kind of what happened with Kane Lee last year. He was really bad the year before, but he got hot in the beginning of the year, ended up having a big year. If that happens with Morrow, I can see him making an impact on, on the Cubs. So that, that'll be mine. Matt, thank you for the question. Everybody over at the Sports Blitz, thanks for the questions. We have one final question 
from a guy who listens every week. That is my father. Shout out to you. Noah, Shane. he has one he's kind of busting your balls on. He says, I welcome this. He's joking. He has a serious question, but his my question for Noah, which game would the Yankees have won if the Astros didn't cheat? The one where they scored one runs, zero runs, <laughs> one run, or zero, one run? None. Everybody <laughs> called me, uh, nobody, you know, it's not everybody, it's just uh, Vasilis, but uh, everybody's saying I'm like biased about the Yankees. I have said on numerous occasions you have. that the Yankees would not have won in 2017 despite this because the Yankees did not score in Houston. And Houston outpitched them in Houston, despite you know maybe knowing what was going in Game Six when it was a tie game uh, for a while, and then breaking out. Games one and two were tight. Um, you could argue playing from behind maybe had an impact on that. The Yankees got smoked in Game Seven. Uh, the Astros were just better in that game. The Yankees looked lifeless. Um, I, I don't think they would have won any of them. And you know other people will argue differently, and um, they should have done it organically. Obviously, there's a little bit more of an asterisk next to that. It doesn't feel as bad from a Yankee fan perspective losing that because you know that the Astros were an advantage that the Yankees didn't have. Um, but I don't think the Yankees would have won any of those games objectively. And I, I think that they, you need to score at least three runs to win a game usually. And I think it's tough to win when you're winning the 2-1 game. That's only really going to happen if you have like a Garrett Cole, Jacob DeGrom matchup. Uh, so uh, that that's my take on that. So his actual question is... Oh, that's, that's not no, the actual question. No, that wasn't the actual question. That was the one he was kind of busting his ball. You're busting your balls on, but... His actual question is, who would you like to see batting leadoff for the Mets this season? And as the Mets fan, I would say that I want to see McNeil at least start the year leading off. He led off the majority of last year. Obviously, he could hit very well in a two or a three position in the lineup. He's a hitter. He could hit anywhere. He just worked at the top of the order last year. He was a good table setter. He took his walks. Nimmo was an incredible leadoff hitter in 2018. He walked so much, and he was always getting on base. Problem with Nimmo is... One, he didn't really play last year. And two, in the beginning of the season when he played, I, the guy literally had a hole in his bat. I mean, he was swinging through fastball after fastball after fastball. McNeil worked there last year. If it's not broken, don't fix it. That's the phrase. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I would say that I want I mean, Jeff McNeil top of the lineup until Nimmo proves that he can be up there and then we can move McNeil to the two or three spot. For now, I'm sticking with McNeil there. I completely agree with you. I don't have a lot to add other than another Yankee comparison. I think anybody watching the Yankees last year loved the Mayhew Judge 1-2 just because it just felt like from the get-go, pitchers are sweating, and you have a guy on every single inning uh, when those guys are hitting. And I think with McNeil and Alonzo, there's very fair comparison there. Uh, so I think McNeil leadoff, you should stick with that um, since it worked. But if he goes down or if Nimmo's hitting really well at the bottom, then you can move Nimmo up because you kind of want your highest on base guy leading off usually. That's kind of the trend that's going in, unless he's your best hitter. Um, and I think there's an argument that, you know, you can have Nimmo lead off, Alonzo two, McNeil three, McNeil can drive in those runs batting third. Uh, and he's enough power to bat three. You know, I don't think you need to have a 35 home run guy in the three hole anymore. And that really isn't where baseball's going. Um, but I think you usually have your two hitter hit in second. So I'd either say go McNeil, I'd say start McNeil and then go Alonzo and then maybe Conforto third. But if something changes, then you can go Nimmo first, Alonzo second, and then uh, McNeil third. I think those are the two, ty- uh, two, one, two, three combos that you can have. It just depends on matchup. It depends on who's swinging the hot bat. It depends on health. Um, but if we're talking all things equal, I'll say McNeil. As always, thank you for listening to this episode of the Baseball and the Burrows podcast. We love when you guys interact with us. We love having questions and when you guys vote on our polls and whatnot. So to interact with us on Twitter, I am at T Smith Sports. Noah is at Noah Broderick Twenty. And the podcast itself is at BATB Pod. Follow us on there. You'll get your latest news on the podcast. You can ask us some questions. Once again, thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week for the next episode.